mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting In Work, episode 68 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective, powered by Audio-Technica. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and this week we have a fantastic guest. Jared Petty is on the show, and man... You're in for a long interview, but a great one because Jared has so many interesting things to say. We'll get to that in a second because first, I have to go through the iTunes review of the week. These things help out the show a lot, so hit me up with one of those five-star reviews if you want to help the show. This one comes from Colin Sparring in the USA with the headline, A Deep Dive Into The Games Industry. He says, After listening to the Colin Moriarty episode, I was hooked. It is clear that Jono is not only a fan of games, but also of the people who make them. He clearly does his homework on the people he interviews and wastes no time going into deep conversation about the guest's work. Hearing these conversations about putting in blood, sweat, and tears into your work really are inspiring. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Colin. Now, Jared has been someone I've wanted on the show for a very, very long time, pretty much since the inception of putting in work because his podcast, Pockets Full of Soup, was one of the inspirations to get this thing started and kind of try and uh, convey a message with every episode based on who the guest is. So for people who don't know Jared, he is a personality in the games industry. He is a former writer for IGN.com, where he worked on guides, reviews, pretty much everything that you could do, he did it there. Until he left to work for Electronic Arts as part of EA's Star Wars team. And then just a few months ago, left EA to start full-time as a content creator on Patreon. So many of his fans are supporting him through that with his podcasts over there, as well as his video series, Hop, Blip and the Jump, which is a kind of video essay series with really personal and philosophical analysis on video games as an art form and as a storytelling device, which is really interesting. I definitely recommend you check those out. When he's not working on that content, Jared is a co-host of Kind of Funny Games Daily, much like Andrea Renee, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago. And he's also freelancing for IGN still, so he's very much in that world. But one thing that I've always loved about Jared is his past. He's worked in these different jobs that have nothing to do with the games industry. And in and of themselves, they maybe aren't that interesting to people. He was a pastor. He worked in IT. He taught in Japan for a couple of years. But I think they've all contributed to make him the person that he is now. And it's given him such a unique perspective on games and entertainment and the way he feels about them is expressed in a really interesting way because he has that different perspective, I think, as well as just a vast knowledge for the history and minutiae and things that most people probably don't care about sometimes. But he makes it interesting. I don't know how he does it, but he does. And I found that even more so in our interview as we went into topics of faith, positivity, mental health. We went into all these things and there was an incident referenced by Jared that I will just explain briefly because otherwise you might be a bit lost. A few years ago, his wife Angie was in a car wreck, quite a serious crash and her health was not great for a long time. So he mentions that and I think that the way that Jared has responded to that incident, you know, with forgiveness and letting go of any anger that you might feel towards the person involved in that crash is really a sign of who Jared is and what makes him a special person. This is our longest episode yet because Jared loves to talk. We talked for a couple hours altogether, but recorded for 90 minutes and this is the edited version of that. So make yourself a coffee or a cup of tea, sit down and enjoy the show. Thank you so much for joining me, Jared. You've been on my list for a long time, but here you are. And thank you for having me. Uh, it means a lot to me. I, I, uh, I 
can always be trusted to rant and always be trusted to be terrible in scheduling. And I hope that I can, uh, I, now that we've gotten past the second being terrible in scheduling, we can move on to the first and, and I can <laughs> rant for you to, to your audience's uh, pleasure. That's awesome. And you flattered me before recording by saying you've actually listened to the show. So you're familiar yeah. with it already. Yeah, I, I know the show. I love the name so very much. Uh, and I know that, that focusing on the name when the quality of the product is far more important is probably silly. But I really just think it's a great hook. It's, it's a delightful topic. But yeah, I am familiar. I like interview format shows. Uh, so this is something I really enjoy. That's very appropriate because I think your interview show, Pockets Full of Soup, was somewhat of an inspiration for me when I was starting out, I guess, in terms of some of the questions I ask and I guess the idea of getting a message across each episode. What to, what would you say? Now here, I'm going to start asking you questions. Yeah. What to, <laughs> what would you say the overall arcing message of, of putting in work is? Uh, so putting in work, I would say the message is that hard work pays off i think and that everyone has this story of uh grit and grind behind the scenes to get where they were like no one just fell into success it's always the result of something that took many years of of practice or or work it it does seem to, to often work that way i've run into humans that have stumbled into things but by and large most of the people i've met that have gotten anywhere near where they want to be worked really hard to do it Mm. i mean i met plenty of people who worked really hard and didn't get what they wanted it doesn't always pay off the way that we wish it would because because fortune and luck are are also elements to success but i I do think that that labor does count for a lot and uh i can agree with that premise i i uh uh, not to, to toot my own horn, but um, <laughs> I enjoy a, a life that, that I really uh, give, gives me a lot of opportunities, but I, I did scramble for that some. But I've also met so many people that work as hard or harder than I have uh, that have uh, not necessarily uh, been given the same opportunities I have. And, and so I, I have to recognize, particularly in the mm. video game industry, that hard work is a necessary part of it, but there are fewer jobs than there are people willing to work for them. And that creates a situation where sometimes uh, sometimes fortune mm. or who you know or blind luck can mean just as much as, as your labor. Yeah. But you're not going to get to the second without the first. I mean, life's not a lottery. <laughs> That's become another theme of the show is, you know, work hard, but you also have to be a little bit lucky. And I've, I've heard yeah. that many, many, many times over the interviews. But, Jared, let's get into the interview itself. Okay. <laughs> I like to ask people like you who inhabit the internet what you tell people you do for a living because it's always interesting to hear what people say uh i've gotten to the point where now i just say i make stuff <laughs> uh and i'm not trying to be cute or facetious but my it's i don't know how to describe my job anymore you know there was a time that that i was an editor uh that was my job and a, a begin and originally a, a guide mm-hmm. editor but i very quickly began to work in news and features and reviews and and all the other facets what ign did and then i began to do on camera work first doing doing just simple hosting for news videos and then doing show hosting and then creating original videos and then i learned to edit video and cut things together and some of my roles almost moved toward production and and I, so by the time it was over with I, I didn't even know what i did there anymore then i went on for a while and i worked in the uh in the publishing and, and development side of the industry and so in all that again my my title was like social content editor but that was really just kind of a nebulous title for for doing about 20 different <laughs> things a day yeah. and then when i stepped away and decided to to create content full-time whatever that is it's like now i i make stuff i i write i edit i produce i cut i host i scramble i go to meetings i i i uh, do silly stuff i shake hands i talk to cool people like you on podcasts i i beg 
people for art yeah. <laughs> uh, so that I don't have to make my own. Uh, it, it's it's a fun yeah. life. And a maker of things. That's great. I guess you, at the moment yeah. you can't even say, oh, I work for this company because you're self-employed now. Yeah, I'm self-employed now. I mean, I, I work for Kind of Funny as um, as a host there, but that is mm. that's only a part part gig. The rest of what I do is is run a uh, a thing called Hot Blip and a Jump, which is kind of an umbrella for for several different game and interview related programs, and uh, and I do different things inside of that. I also freelance for IGN right now too, so I uh, I also write things, and I'll be uh, I'm doing some hosting stuff for another outlet coming out that I not actually sure I can announce yet, so. Well, well, we'll keep that under wraps for now. Yeah. By the time this episode airs, it may have come out already, but we'll see. What I like to do now is backtrack and then kind of let's go over the steps that led to where you are now. Because as I mentioned, the theme of the show is hard work, but often that disguises itself as a bunch of other things that just are kind of progressive <laughs> steps through different industries that one leads to the next. And you've not only worked in video games, but you've worked in... I think as a teacher in Japan, you've been a reverend. Let's kind of go back and see how those things led to the other. My, my resume looks like a career counselor threw up all of it. <laughs> it really does. Uh, it's, it, there's no logic or, or reason to the hodgepodge of, of vocations that I've had in my, in my life. And while I'm certainly you know, a middle-aged person, I, I've still hopefully got plenty left in the tank, so who knows what I'll do next. But uh, yeah, I I didn't plan it this way. I'll tell you what, never, never thought I'd work in video games. I mean, when I was a kid, I was like, yeah, I'm going to make video games when I grow up. And then I started learning to program, and I'm like, that's hard. And I tried to do art, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm bad at this. And I was like, probably not going to do that after all. And so um, eventually my, my plan was to enter pastoral ministry. That was something that, that I felt called to uh, as, I, as I grew up. Uh, it be, that became more cogent of my desire to go into that field in late adolescence and I began preparing for that in college but I was also somebody that fooled around with computers at a time when not everybody fooled around with computers uh, both hardware and software and I learned my way around the rudiments of hardware engineering network engineering things like that when those fields were when those skills were even more rare than they are now so in college I spent a lot of time working on computers uh, and and kind of building a, a college era uh, set of vocational skills out of that that served me later in life. And I used that to get through school and really on into my, my master's program. I did my undergraduate and graduate programs at separate schools and uh, did IT through that entire time, first for the college and then eventually got contracted by someone to work for them as an employee and eventually ended up working for another group. And so did a lot of that kind of thing. By the way, I'm talking about the, the real professional stuff. I mean, if we're going to talk about my first job, uh, you know, outside of mowing lawns, I was like calling Little League games. Uh, for 4.25 an hour. The Little League one might have been the uh, the precursor to what you're doing now. Yeah, it was just me talking <laughs> into a microphone and trying... You know, it was fun. They were little bitty kids, and you'd shout their names and give them nicknames, <laughs> and they liked it, and then they hit the ball. Because I, I had the, like, the little, little, little league kids. So, you know, they, they were like four or five, and they would look up toward the box to see what I was going to say about them. It was so much fun. I got paid like four bucks an hour <laughs> plus two hamburgers and two drinks a day. It was... Wow, uh, that sounds awesome. That was the best best job I ever had. <laughs> but yeah, I did IT through college. That was fun. And right, and that kind of led into as I was uh, finishing my master's, I started working 
uh, teaching uh, online education was a brand new thing then, and I started working for my undergraduate alma mater first as a uh, as a TA teaching classes online, and then once I got my master's as as a full instructor. And so I started doing adjunct teaching online uh, through some of the more primitive systems that existed for that then. And that eventually evolved into doing some classroom teaching eventually. Uh, And I I did uh, quite a bit of adjunct college instruction for a while, which I loved. Also, while I was in college, I did some little bit of research consultation for the national denominational headquarters of a church I worked for. That was a fun job. I, I didn't do a very good job at it, but I tried really hard. And uh, that was mostly around digging up statistics around church growth and trends that were happening in that across the country, creating survey instruments and talking to people uh, about why they'd made certain decisions in in church leadership. While I was doing those things, I eventually um, finished my degree and started pastoring. And I did parish ministry for about five years, uh, which was something I very much enjoyed. Uh, Again, I'll talk your ear off if you let me. Yeah, absolutely. So were you uh, like a youth pastor or like a senior pastor at that point? You know, my, my first internship was as a youth pastor. And then I uh, I did some other stuff in it with uh, ministry for the elderly and stuff like that. But m- most of the mainline pastoral work I did was in small congregations where, uh, where the difference between pastor and senior pastor didn't mean all that much uh, because my first church, there was only, only me really. And uh, so it was kind of pastor of everything. It was just pastor, shepherd, which is what pastor means. And then uh, that's all the word means. And then senior pastor at the second place, because we did actually have some staff. Um, But I did a lot of youth work. Uh, Like when I was senior pastor of that church, we didn't have a youth minister. So I did the youth group there and always enjoyed that part of things. Uh, Youth ministry is fun. It's, it's, it's a delightful pain. Yeah, um, that's a good way it, to describe a, it. I've done like a, a little bit of like youth leadership, but not like in any pastoral sense. But just you know, you know, rocking up and helping organize things and supervising kids, and yeah, it's uh, it's fun sometimes. <laughs> Our teenagers are delightful. You're never so alive as when you're a teenager, and you're also never so obnoxious. And it's it's a delightful combination. I love how surly and angry they are. Yeah. Um, it, it it makes working with them fun because they kind of call you on your crap. And that's really enjoyable. Um, and they're also more receptive than adults at being called on their own crap, hmm. uh, yeah, which, which I also really like. We'll come back to, uh, I think, the ministry stuff a bit later because I've got some questions about that. But I'll let you continue your uh, career journey story. I hope I don't bore you with all this. I, no, I have a little word. Good. All right. Well, so I, I did ministry in a couple of different congregations. And then... Um, during that time, I was continuing to uh, to teach, uh, uh, and eventually I got an opportunity to teach in Japan. My wife and I had a chance to move over there and teach, uh, not college there, but actually um, our students ranged from four years old up to people in the senior citizen age category and everything in between. So some days I was kindergarten teacher and other days I was a senior adult class teacher and just everything in between worked on a bunch of different sites and campuses. I taught inside a Sony factory for a while, uh, taught, uh, taught at a, a doctor at his office, went to uh, actually a couple of doctors would go and do, uh, had people come to our classrooms at the school and do things, worked at satellite like campuses and most of my students were Japanese uh, we had a, a couple who were uh, Brazilian because there's a large Brazilian population in Japan 
Um, but most of my students were there to learn English, and that was spectacular. It's some of the most fun I've ever had. I was in Japan for close to three years, I think, and um, it was the only time I ever worked in the same business with my wife, and uh, we were the two teachers at the small school. Yeah. And then there were it was just us and a couple of Japanese staff, uh, one who was the office manager and uh, the other who was an assistant there. And then the owner of the school worked on a different site, and that, that was a whole other can of worms. But it's mostly us kind of off in our own little corner over there in this small town in Japan. Yeah, and people who are familiar with your uh, podcasts and I guess you at all will know that a lot of your stories go back to the, that three-year period. How significant was the Japan phase of your life? And was that something you'd always wanted to do, was to live there and, and work there? Yeah, it's the happiest I've ever been. And some of that was fantasy land for me. It really was. Um, I'm not trying to, I don't want to make Japan sound perfect because it's not. Japan has plenty of problems, but it was something I dreamed about since childhood. I, uh, when I was a little kid, um, Super Mario Brothers was the biggest thing in the whole wide world. And when I say that, I think it's difficult to overstate how much Mario Mania permeated American culture when it first broke. Super Mario Brothers, the game, was like something that came down from outer space. You had had video games you played before, and then you had this thing that, that was still called a video game and was still controlled with the joystick and buttons, but was so far beyond what... It would be as if you sat down and you put on a VR helmet and you were suddenly like standing inside a real CGI Westworld that looked indistinguishable from reality it felt like that much of a jump when you were in the middle of it like ready player one or something yeah you're just like this is impossible this world just goes on what is this and i remember flipping over the super mario brothers cartridge looking on the back and it said made in japan that was the beginning wherever this magical thing came from wherever this japan was i had heard of japan but i don't know much about it but whatever it was I had to go there, and I had to see the kind of place where this came into the rest of the world. <laughs> and then very quickly after that, growing up in that era when, when you know, the, the age of, of Ninja Turtles and, and Robotech and uh, Anime's rise to prominence and uh, the, the, the permeation of, of so many cultural norms where, where Japanese loan words became a part of American language, just as at the same time, many parts of American culture were becoming very, very popular in Japan. This weird kind of shared cultural interchange took place. It was a perfect time to grow up in that and just be enamored by it. My mm. wife grew up with a similar fascination, and yet neither of us ever traveled there. And as adults... We'd always said we were going to go, and after we got married fairly young, and years passed, we never did. And finally, we talked to a couple of friends that had gone years before and taught there. And we listened to their story, and we kind of looked at each other and said, if we don't do this now, we're never going to do it. We always said we were, and so really, in the course of a very short period of time, only a few months, we quit our jobs and moved to Japan. And it was rad. Uh and it turned out that Japan did not disappoint. Uh, my experience there was that it is a culture, it, it is, and I don't want to say this wrong, but for an American, Japan might be the most foreign country in the world. Um, it is a place that is proudly distinctive. It, it is a country that has had a history of literally walling itself off from the rest of the world. And then, conversely, very rapidly, drawing in things from all over the world and both of those were very proactive decisions and that's created a culture of 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 sort of 
by almost uh, tremendous polar tensions. Hmm. Uh, where a land where balance is not necessarily a matter of meeting in the middle, but accepting two paradoxical realities as part of who you are and what culture is. And that is a very different way of growing up and living than, than most Americans experience. And so every day was educational. Every day I learned something. Every day there was a surprise. Every single day day and it wasn't just novelty it was learning and discovery and i i discovered prejudices and blinders i didn't even know i had and it really changed the way i looked at the world and it brought joy into my life most of the time i saw plenty of terrible things there and i encountered some pretty awful awful moments and and horrific things but the overall context was so illuminating that it couldn't help but be a positive experience. And I met so many spectacular human beings. Uh, and and it really did help me to, to understand just the both the marvelous diversity of, of people across the face of the earth and the remarkable similarity of humans. Uh, and, and the fact that culture does carry us pretty far, but ultimately folks are kind of folks. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and that's a good thing. Interesting stuff. Okay. Now I've distracted you again, but I'll allow you to continue. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'll go all over the place if you let me. I, I never, my father used to tell me I have diarrhea of the mouth. And I think that's, that's just about correct. <laughs> so we left Japan in 2011, um, uh, right at the time of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. And when I got back to the States, didn't quite know what I was going to do. Um, what vocationally, and I was very fortunate. A friend helped me get a job working back in uh, technology again. This time as a uh, as a network administrator for a company that did 911 uh, services. So uh, to explain that really quickly, all those you know when you're watching TV and somebody makes a 911 call and there's this big dark room where everybody's sitting and they take the call and they send the cops to help you. Mm-hmm. I built the network backbones and computer structure for those rooms. Oh, wow. um, so I would work either out in the field, traveling to one of them and either installing or repairing what was there. Or I worked in a laboratory at our headquarters where we would build the whole system turnkey before it was ever delivered and actually install all the software and custom build it for the needs of the client. Uh, Cause those centers are not standardized. And then make sure that it all worked before we got there. Cause some of those places didn't really have internet. So <laughs> once you were there, yeah, that was for security reasons. So once you were there, you had to work with, so you'd build it before you got there and then put it all together. It was a really interesting job. Um, and I did that for a while, but that was not my calling in life by a long shot. And I looked at returning to pastoral ministry because I'd left it on very good terms but that was not something that my, my wife was particularly thrilled about me going back to. Uh, it is a time and energy demanding job in very specific ways. And she was not keen on me returning to that at that point. So I was working in tech. And while I'd still been living in Japan, I had started writing 
for fun. I liked writing. Writing's a big part of ministry, and it's a big part of teaching. You, you do both a lot when you when you do work in those fields. And I'd been teaching college and teaching school there, and I'd been pastoring for a long time. Pastoring at its best is a scholarly pursuit, uh, even though mo- ministry is mostly about helping people or being there. Uh, you know, your, your sermons often matter less than what you say is very often much less important than what you do. You know, helping to carry a casket or being there when somebody dies and just being there for somebody to cry and even though you don't have any answers is often far more valuable than any words of wisdom you may impart. But it does help to study constantly and learn constantly and be challenged in your ideas so you don't say something pathetically ignorant and damaging in the wrong moment, which, by the way, I've done plenty of times. And uh, so you'll do a lot of writing and reading and scholarly work if, if you're doing it right. And uh, I started writing for fun about video games because I loved video games. And there was this English language magazine in Japan that would take submissions, and I wrote a few articles for them. I'd started listening to video game podcasts when I was still living in the States, back when podcasts were a brand new thing. And I I was especially intrigued by the 1UP Network, uh, which did things like Retronauts and and, uh, Good Grief and the 1UP Show and Four Guys 1UP around that time. I was really intrigued by that whole new medium of kind of game talk radio. And I brought that love with me. And in Japan, on these long drives to some of the satellite schools, I'd, I'd listen to those. And just there, oneup.com ran a contest when I was living in Japan to win a trip to E3 uh, in exchange for writing a, a kind of a creative submission. And I went way overboard, and instead of writing a, uh, a simple submission, I wrote a text adventure video game. I, I programmed one in Inform and wrote the whole thing, and I made it about going to 1UP and winning a trip there with the 1UP staff. And I catered to their, to their, uh, uh, to their vanity as much as possible and made a bunch of inside jokes. And I don't think this thing exists anymore, unfortunately, um, but... They were really amused by it, and while I didn't win the contest, I started getting freelance work, which I had not expected. And I was like, oh, wow, you can make money writing about video games. That's awesome. And you get published. And I went from that, and then some of my contacts in that went through to to GameSpy, and then from that to IGN eventually. And then after I'd moved back to the States, IGN had another contest about writing about games and i was like well hey i'll just pull the same trick again so i wrote another text adventure game <laughs> uh, about winning a trip to e3 this time for different people and uh uh once again did not win but they liked it so much that they sent me anyway um and suddenly i was at e3 as a community correspondent for ign and i met all the ign folks and i got to write a lot of stuff and sure enough more freelance when i got back and I'm doing all this while I'm, you know, working this this kind of nine to five network job and traveling on the road to Kansas and New York and Florida fixing nine one one centers and not really having a lot of fun doing it. And one day, about a year after, uh, about a year after I'd gone to E three as a community person, I get a call from Sam Claiborne. He's like, "Hey, you want to come out here and work?" <laughs> And I remember it, it was very funny to me because when they called off me the job, I was dressed as Jesus. No, I was St. Paul. <laughs> okay. I was dressed as St. Paul. I was working in the vacation Bible school for the kids. It's this little church in North Carolina just as a volunteer. So I was dressed as an old Bible guy when I got the call. It was really strange. And I moved to San Francisco where I'd never been before. 
and uh, started writing about video games. Oh, wow, this one question I've talked about for like 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's all right. It's been a long uh, life. I'm interested because that obviously is a dream job for many people, probably yourself included, but given how many different occupations you'd held up to that point, what was it that made you, I guess, certain that that was what you wanted to do enough to move to San Francisco? I wasn't certain. I just knew that opportunities like that don't come twice. I knew by that point that I really liked writing about games, and I knew that I was getting better at it and could even be good at it. I knew that the people at IGN were people I wanted to work with. I had had good experiences with them, working with them as a freelancer. I knew that if I got through the door and did good work, there was a very good chance that I could find other opportunities and grow in that place. I knew all that, and I knew I loved it, but I also was terrified. It was a pay cut. It was moving to the most expensive city in America. It was moving across the country and my wife having to try to find a new job. It was a lot that frightened me. And I was not certain, but I did it anyway. Uh, because I kept looking at myself in the mirror and going, how do you not do this? How do you look at yourself for the rest of your life knowing you didn't go for that when you had the chance? You just can't work. Because I worked hard for that. I make it sound like a lot of things did fall in my lap. But, I mean, it was years of grinding on long freelance projects. I talk about, oh, I just, you know, I programmed a couple of videos. I wrote a couple of (laughs) video games. You know, again, they were simple, but they took weeks. Uh, You know, I... And this is while working often multiple jobs. I wanted, I wanted to write for a living. I wanted to create for a living. I wanted to have the opportunity to touch games for a living. These things brought so much joy to my life. I've barely talked about it, but a constant from the day I, one of my earliest memories, uh, you know, maybe three years old, is about video games. And it's never gone away. They have been magic to me. That electric glow has never lost its luster. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I had to do it, man. I had to try. That's cool. And uh, how did you find that? I guess it was a huge change from what you'd, all the different work you'd done up to that point. It must have been completely different, right? Well, it was nice because I'd been a guides freelancer mostly. I'd written non-guides work. I'd written features and I'd written review work. But... Uh, I was brought in primarily as a guides guy originally, which meant that I was actually just doing what I'd done before, but in-house with early access on high-profile stuff and tons of resources and a great team and a great boss all right there. Mm -hmm. And that made it... So it was just a far more efficient way to apply my energy in that. And uh, that was the beginning. But I, I was very, very interested in getting involved in as much as I possibly could. And so, yes, everything was different because IGN uh, was very good uh, most of the time about this kind of idea that, hey, you're interested. We, we understand people here like to make things. So if you want to make stuff, you know, get your day job done and we'll let you do what you want and learn new skills. And you kind of define your own role here. They were really good about that with me. And so I was like, hey, I want to write. You know, it started, hey, you, we need some feature blurbs. I'll write them. We need somebody to do a quick let's play on this. I'll do it. Need some, you know, it it was just willing to 
and then you built trust and you got to know the people and you got to know the systems and the more experience you built, the more doors opened. That was how it worked out for me. And so, yeah, everything in that arena was new and extremely exciting. And IGN produces ridiculous varieties of content. And I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that on the content side, I have probably produced every kind of thing IGN (laughs) makes uh, at some point or another uh, and been a part of it. Um, And they were willing to let that happen. And so that meant, again, you didn't get bored. I I was, you know, the day I left IGN, I, I was not bored at all. I was not discontent. Uh, they they were great to me, uh, and I really loved my time there. Sure, and I'm interested was uh, was becoming a personality at IGN part of what you wanted to do, or was that just a result of doing all these things, all these opportunities that came up? Well, I'm a loud mouth, uh, and I, <laughs> it was kind of a surprise to me that I, I don't quite know what defines a personality. I you know I, I look at me, I'm a, a strange egg-headed old man uh i am not what you think of when you look at a a host um you know by a long shot i just loved listening to other people talk about games and inserting my input and creating new stuff and i was able by hook by crook and by many open doors to make that happen i mean you know the beyond guys really thrust me into that limelight by uh, allowing me to come guest on uh, in the uh, legendary rotating third chair uh-huh. every now and then. Um, that was that was something that Greg and Colin made happen, and that was their choice. I was just like, hey, can I do that sometime? Yeah, sure. And they did it. Um, that was extraordinary because uh, they didn't have to. They just saw that I was enthusiastic, and I sometimes had some idea what I was talking about occasionally. And uh, <laughs> likewise with. Uh, you know, with, with Scoop, which I ended up being fairly regular on, um, that was just a matter of going to Damon one day and saying, can I be on Scoop sometime? He's like, sure. A few weeks later, I was on Scoop. And then he's like, hey, you want to come back? Yeah. And then it just kept happening. Um, I did interject myself onto things when I saw opportunities. Uh, it, it never underestimate the power of being willing to do something when no one else wants to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, the thing about IGN is that everyone is overworked. I'm not saying that I was like harder working or that's not that at all. Everybody there works so hard. There's always more work to do than there are people available to do it. So if you want to get into this position or you want to have a chance to be a voice on this project, very often it was a matter of being like, no, I'll do that first and loudly. Um, and I, I was pretty good at that, probably to the point of obnoxiousness, frankly. <laughs> There's Jared again, putting his hand off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there was, oh yeah, the, and there was a lot of that. Um, and uh, again, but that's a place where everybody has their hands up. That's why it, folks work, they, they get they get their stuff done, man. I, I've never been in a place where, never seen people work harder than, than people at IGN. Yeah. It's, it's kind of I believe that. I have a question before we continue. Uh, you know, natu- I think you naturally you're very humble, Jared. You like to uh, self-deprecate quite a lot with your skills and knowledge in this industry, which is, in my opinion, second to none. What do you think it was that drew IGN towards you in terms of giving you a job and I guess giving you all these opportunities because there's a lot of people trying to get those roles. You know, you see whenever they advertise a position, 
every second person on Twitter is like, yeah, I just applied for IGN or whatever it is. So what do you think it is that they saw in you? I think a few things. Uh, it, again, trying to toot my own horn is, is, is always an uncomfortable position. I'm going to make you do it. Okay, well, if I'm being frank, here are some things that worked out. I did what they told me. That helped. Uh, if they gave me instructions, I followed them. Um, I was very good at that. Uh, it is amazing how helpful doing what you're told when you're trying to start out is. Uh, I took I, if they gave very specific instructions, I followed them very specifically. Uh, if I didn't understand something, I asked, and I asked the person most likely to have the answer, and I asked them quickly. I got my deadlines done on time. I was a capable writer with a fairly basic grasp of grammar and clean language i understood how at least at the beginning i think i understood how not to over promise i got worse at that as time passed <laughs> because yeah you, you you know you suddenly you're just like oh i could sleep tonight or i could do this you don't want to do too much of that but uh, i started small which is very important a willingness to work on projects and build a resume and I listened to feedback. I asked for feedback on professional work. I didn't try to grab people and be like, hey, well, you look at this thing you have nothing to do with and tell me what you think of it. Instead, I'd do a project for somebody and be like, I'd read my own, I'd do my own feedback on it, I'd be like, yeah, so next time I do this, anything you want me to change? Just like hmm. that, or anything you want me to, yeah. And, and if they say no, then just, that's okay. You find your own things you think will improve it, and you go on. Willingness counts a lot frankly being in san francisco the willingness to move was was really important that helped with that reasonable understanding of the fact that you would work a lot and not work a lot and get paid very little um i knew that going in and had tried to build around that as well as i could although i didn't always succeed in that as well as i'd hoped either a willingness to watch and read other people's work constantly to emulate what they were best at uh, I think that's very important. Sure. It's kind of like Stephen King says about writing. Don't write if you're not willing to read. If you don't have time to read, you don't have time to write. That's something he said a lot to professional writers. Uh, if you're going to write for a living, then you better be able to read other people's works. So you can get better. If you're going to make videos for a living, you got to watch other people's videos. And you just watch them to make you happy. You watch them and you try to steal their best techniques. You try to learn from what makes them work. You don't try to be something you're not, but you try to make yourself better at what you know you can be better at. Very little of the, what I do professionally comes particularly naturally to me. Uh, it really is a matter of trying to learn from people who are good at things and, and emulate their qualities the best that my personality allows. Uh, that how counts for a lot. I was never as good at this as I wished I'd have been, but friendliness without ingratiation is very helpful. You don't want to... You, you just be blunt about the fact that you want a job. They know you want a job. Don't hide it. Um, you know, just... They understand why you're there. Just be like, hey, how can I help this situation? And any opportunity, how do I make your life easier? People want to work with somebody who makes their life mm. easier. Look for the opportunities to actually help someone do their job so that they don't have to spend as much time or effort on it. Uh, if what you're doing for somebody creates work for them, that's usually a bad idea when you're trying to break into something. What you want to do is create less work for them. That means them not having to th feel like they have to check over your work as much. Them not having to feel like they have to handhold you through everything. You know, you, you, you gotta 
got to keep that in mind. Uh, I tried to diversify my skill set. That was huge. Maybe the most important thing in my whole career is that I treated it like college. Um, uh, every day at IGN was a chance to learn a new skill, even ones I wasn't interested in. I, I didn't think that I was going to enjoy chopping video nearly as much as I do. I learned a ton about video editing and production at IGN and uh, lighting and camera work and lots of things that I'm still not great at, but I learned much more about them. And that was all proactive. If I had tried to wait for them to teach me that, I wouldn't have learned a lot of those skills. Um, I chased them down. Uh, that, that counts for a lot, too. That's a lot of self And <laughs> yeah, be nice. Um, be nice. Learn how to say no. Uh, I, I, people tease me a lot in a friendly way about uh, uh, being a nice guy. And it is important. You want to be... You want to be a positive presence in your workplace, if at all possible. That doesn't mean faking it. That doesn't mean being disingenuous about the fact that something's awful. You don't need to. You don't need to be disingenuous to be positive in your overall demeanor. It's better to be real with your friends when they need you to be real. But it, it, it's also very important to be able to say no. That's one of the most valuable skills in a good business. Bad businesses don't want you to say no. They want you to find a way to do it anyway. Yeah. Um, good businesses want you to tell them, no, this is not the best idea and here's why. So let's come up with a different plan. You, you start with this. Here's this. I don't think this will work. Here's why I don't think it'll work. Here's what we should do instead. Man, those are three very powerful steps to go through. Doesn't always, you're still going to get stuck with stuff you don't think is going to work and you have to do it sometimes. But don't be afraid to make that voice heard. Uh, that's really helpful. Cool. All right. That was a long huh, rant. That was good. Like I usually ask people for advice at the end of the episode, but we might have already just covered that unless you can think of something <laughs> else by then. So IGN, obviously a huge company. You got some amazing opportunities. I imagine it would have been a very hard place to leave. It was. It was very difficult to leave, but I, I got a, a pretty uh, a tremendously exciting opportunity. I went to work for uh, Electronic Arts. Uh, specifically, uh, I was given an opportunity to work on, on the Star Wars franchise. And, you know, when somebody calls and is like, hey, we'd like you to come work on Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, you know, that that's why I say that, that leaving IGN was very amicable. It's like It wasn't like I was unhappy there. It's just like someone called and said, you can go work on Star Wars. Plus, again, it was an opportunity to learn. It was an opportunity to learn about the publishing and development ends because while I had worked on the media end of things and the enthusiast end of things, I uh, you learn a lot about game development working on media because you get to know people who do it for a living but it's still very different being a part of the other side and the skills you pick up there uh, both the general business skills that you pick up which are not always as much a part of what you do on the content creation end of media uh, and also what you learn about how that process works is, is very powerful so i and i learned a lot from that sure that's really cool and I guess along the way, even when you were at IGN, you had started dabbling in producing your own content outside with Pockets Full of Soup and uh, the way that that's evolved over the years. So what was the, I guess, inspiration for that? And was it that you saw what it could become uh, with Hop, Blip and a Jump Now? Or was it just that you wanted to kind of do something uh, with a message? I wanted to give back because I'd been given a lot of opportunities. I know that sounds pretentious, but... Um, people had been so kind to me. Uh, you know, there's some bad things happened to me in my personal life during my time at IGN. And uh, 
people had shown me enormous kindness. I'd become aware between that and my experience in pastoral ministry of just how powerful uh, kind voices could be. And I had this idea that having a small audience of people that seemed interested in my work, that maybe it'd be good to talk about things in addition to, to video games uh, that, that made our lives richer and better. And so I kind of stumbled onto the idea of just taking people, you know, I, I have this conviction. I love storytelling. I love stories. I love books. I love reading. I brought up reading and writing a lot. Um, everybody's got a story. And I said, like, instead of asking people about their direct courses in life, I'd ask them about the human beings that had helped bring them to where they were. And in that, I knew they'd naturally be able to tell their own stories as well. So in Pockets, we always ask, you know, tell us about somebody you're thankful for. And they go from there. The guest just goes, and sometimes it's a family member, sometimes it's a celebrity, sometimes it's somebody they haven't seen in years, sometimes it's someone who's dead. We had all kinds of answers. Sometimes we had at least one episode where it was a, effectively an enemy uh, that someone you was very thankful for. And that turned out pretty well. I never intended it to become some kind of uh, a media empire, and I, I didn't really imagine it was going to become a vocation. <laughs> Neither of those things was really what it did. I, I, I didn't package it that way. That It was not particularly commoditized in in terms of making it something slick. It's very rough around the edges, and, and I kind of like it better that way. You know, filmed on the crappy camera and the bad lighting uh, it, with the silly kind of weird logo and... and it's it's just an opportunity to feel down homey and to feel a little personal. And I don't mean cheesy down homey. I mean that real feeling of sitting around a table with somebody you love. Um, it, one of my favorite moments in all of cinema is the end, the final scene of the, the movie Moonstruck. Where, have you ever seen it, Jenna? I haven't, no. Moonstruck's a good flick. And the last scene of Moonstruck, there are about a half a dozen different, plot lines, all completely messed up, all terrible things happening in this family. And everybody's having breakfast at the kitchen table. Like, the people just start wandering in. And in the course of this conversation, as people keep wandering into the breakfast table until it's completely overcrowded, every one of the plot lines is resolved in the course of a few minutes. And it's done because it's a family at a table loving one another and speaking honestly to each other and yelling at one another and crying. And it's great. It's this wonderful, com- comedic, dramatic, wonderful moment. I wanted to take an iota of what that scene contained and share that with people. The stories and, and how the people around us make us who we are. And that's what Pockets was. I, at IGN, working on the side, I, I was not going to work in video game content uh, outside of what I produced there. But they were great with me being able to tell stories. And also, I, and I was never shy about this, but it was also um, a way to supplement my income, frankly. Hmm. And I, I uh, was always pretty transparent about that end of it. Uh, because it is an expensive place to live, and video game uh, coverage doesn't pay much. And Pockets allowed me to expand what I was able to make on the side, and that was something else I did. Hop, Flip, Jump, which is what I do now, which is what I've done uh, since I stepped away from EA, I missed creating, and, I, and Pockets was great to create on the side, but I wanted to make video game stuff again. 
I wanted to host again. I wanted to talk about this this medium publicly again. I wanted to look at writing uh, again and and build opportunities toward that. Something I, that I just a love of my heart and. Um, I thought very much about the possibilities of development, and this may be a first step in that as well. And so I went out and decided to make something, and the kind of funny guys are like, yeah, come on over here, do some stuff. And uh, my old alma mater, and, you know, that's it's pretty great. So yeah. I, uh, I'm having fun. I can see that. It looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> and I, I wonder, was, uh, was it hard or difficult to step out and trust your patreon audience to support that and you know a fairly big financial side of it would be you know those dollars that people are voluntarily giving you for that content oh it's terrifying absolutely uh it 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 still is every day um i mean i i would love to to make much more money than i do right (laughs) now um at the same time i'm making much more money than most people that didn't have the tremendous opportunities that have been given to me would be able to do in this. Like I, the installed, the fact that an audience already understands the kind of things I'm interested Mm. in making, knows who I am and that I have friends who are willing to introduce me that have vast audiences of their own to their, uh, to, to their communities gives me an automatic leg up on most folks that would want to do something like this from a financial perspective. So I receive far more support than I could ever hope for otherwise. But at the same time, it's, I, it is, uh, there are more lucrative ways to, to, to make a living than, than what I do right now. I'll tell you what. And so I'm constantly teetering between terror and exhilaration, uh, in that (laughs) process. Uh, and the fact that for some reason, a large number of, marvelously generous and and obviously demented people have decided to help me do this through Patreon. It's great. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know how to thank them enough. They let me live my dream right now. But yeah, I stepping out and doing this was the most frightening career move I've probably ever made. Uh, Especially, I mean, middle-aged men are not supposed to quit their day jobs. (laughs) You know, we're supposed to buy sports cars, uh, and, and have midlife crises. Uh, and instead I decided to kind of start a career that most people start in their early twenties in my, you know, late thirties and, uh, woohoo way to go. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, you know what? I'm having a great time doing it. I work really hard, but I have so much joy in it. That's awesome. And, uh, counts for a lot. And I got great friends yeah, around me. That it really me. shines through in the content. I think that uh, well, that joy, you. and I, I suppose freelancing and that kind of thing is uh, another opportunity to supplement now your your Patreon income. And you know, if when things can take a dip in Patreon, you can always work more and more uh, for whoever's interested in in what you've got to to put out there as well, can't you? Yeah, well, that's kind of what I've had to do. I mean, the fact is, I didn't hit my complete creative independence goals. I've I've got one in my Patreon, like a, a threshold I would kind of have to fit hit to just be able to do hot blip and a jump. And we're not there, so freelance is a necessity uh, right now uh, to to make ends meet. Um, and that's okay because it's a great opportunity. Yeah. So one of the things I loved about the very first episode of Hot Blip and a Jump. I guess just the personal touch of your experience. And it really made me think, gee, I would have loved to hear a sermon from Jared Petty back in the day because everything that you that you talk about is so vivid and descriptive and emotive. And I can actually see how 
you're writing a sermon or writing a, a lesson for a class that you are teaching, those kinds of tasks are now shining through in the way that you present video game content in terms of having a message and having an illustration to show that. Is that something where you can see there is a connection over those different careers and different tasks? Oh, absolutely. You're very kind, by the way, to say that. But yeah, there's a connection. Uh, it's they are sermonic in a lot of ways. They are they are, uh, and you mentioned illustration. I mean, that's that's sermon illustration. People are going to be surprised that that have heard me speak here or anywhere else. My sermons were so short that sometimes I'd receive <laughs> complaints. I know that must sound shocking for people, but I deliberately kept my sermon short. I operated on the idea that that maybe it would be best to get one thing across every sermon. And that if I could just get one thing that stuck with people, that was 52 lessons a year, 52 new good things that people might actually remember. And that's a lot. And so I thought it was better for me to preach, you know, one 15-minute sermon uh, than try to preach you know, three 15-minute sermons yeah. and call it one 45-minute sermon. Uh, and so I kept them very short. And it's it's something I wish I could translate better into my video game life, honestly. Maybe I should. I'm sure there's some, some folks in the comment section that would also love to, that to happen. But yeah, it is very much like a sermon. It's philosophical. I don't regard it as secular. I don't believe my work is secular. I don't talk very much overtly about my faith as a part of my work. It comes up every now and then. But I do think think that some of the work I do is is what I would describe as, and I don't want to turn people off with this term, but yeah. missionally oriented. I think it's designed to highlight those parts of life that it's good for us to think about existentially, spiritually, philosophically. I really do buy into this idea that the people can change and be changed and that somebody out there actually cares about us and that that somebody wants nothing more in the world than for us mm. to care about each other. And that's, I, I buy into that. So I try to reflect that in my work. Mr. Rogers is a big influence. Uh, Bob Ross, big influence. Um, there's a preacher named Fred Craddock. Uh, some of his words, uh, he, he said this thing that has stuck with me my whole life in a sermon I heard once. Craddock said, you know, most Christians, he believed, uh, that were sitting and listening to this sermon... Uh, in that he's speaking in this room, he said, you know, said I know a lot of people that I truly believe. If it came down to the moment, if somebody said, right now, I need you to give your life for Christ, give your life for others, give your life in this moment, right now, he said, I think most of you probably would be willing to stand up and do that in this second. He said, the problem with God is that you come to God with a thousand dollar bill of your life and you say, yep, you can have it all right now. Let's do it. Lay it down. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to give for and God hands you, takes the $1,000 bill and hands you a giant, giant sack of quarters as change. And he says, nah, he says, I just want you to give one of these away every day for the rest of your life. Because, and he said, that's much harder to try to day in, day out through the grind of existence and all the things that bring us down to try to give gifts of decency and kindness and love in the midst of a life that just beats the hell out of us sometimes there's my sermon for the day i'm stealing threads <laughs> but uh i think there's a lot of truth to that yeah. and man i've screwed up so many times in so many ways I, I there you know i have a lot of regrets man um but the other part of what i believe is that um forgiveness and repentance go side by side uh, there's this idea that that 
Christian faith is supposed to be some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. I think people abuse that a lot to justify whatever they want. Mm. It's not that. It's that if you're willing to repent, to change, you know, it, not just feel bad for it, but try to change the way you're acting, that that's where forgiveness and change began. And I'm trying to live that. I don't always pull it yeah. off, but I work on it. Yeah, no, that's great, Jared. I, I mean, as a Christian myself, any chance that you've taken to talk about your faith has really resonated with me. And I think you've done a really great job of, I guess, shining the light, as we say in church circles, like showing Jesus' love to people without overtly bashing them over the head. Like you've never done that. And I think that you've been a really good proof that you don't have to be a pastor or a missionary to have a mission and to reflect that love to uh to the world through what you have to say even if you're not talking about whether god exists or faith or any of those things it still comes through and it comes through in that positivity and that uh message of kindness i think because people know that it comes from like why is jared like this why is he so great oh it must be because of this well i i it's very kind of you to put it that way i i don't know i try i mean somebody i really do believe somebody is changing me I've done plenty of things that I that I'm not proud of, but I do think that the best parts of me are largely represented by the work of of a higher power and frankly of human beings serving the best wishes of that person. Maybe you know, I I'll never forget what happened after the wreck and the way people reached out to me. And a lot of those people I know because they're my friends are are not people that are necessarily walking around professing every cornerstone of the Nicene Creed in the most overt and orthodox terms. But the love that they represented was more Christ-like than a lot of what I encounter in churches. And I'll never forget that. Very good. Is there any more to say about the career? Because we've kind of been going in kind of different <laughs> different sections. And Well, no, I'm just doing this. I mean, I now I, uh, you know, uh, just a couple of months ago, I uh, I decided to make content full time for a living. I uh, uh, I stepped away from uh, my work in publishing and I went over and started hosting Kind of Funny. Uh, created Hot Blip at a Jump, which is a kind of a part documentary, part essay, part sermon, part diary series about uh, about games and how how they're all connected, not just to one another but to our lives. How they really teach us things um those take way too long to make and i need to speed them up uh the next one on death will probably be out when this episode comes up i also host a weekly podcast that i started uh very recently called red dead radio uh which is the red dead redemption podcast which is mostly about guess what red dead redemption uh and uh also focuses in not just on red dead 2 news but a red dead 1 playthrough and all kinds of discussion on the influences uh, around Red Dead Games, mostly film, television, books, music, comics about the West and Western themes. That's everything from Firefly and Star Wars to Westworld and uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, and we talk about all that with different – every week a different Wild Wild guest uh, comes on. And we, we talked about the wiki wiki wild wild guest. It's still funny. <laughs> it, it's so silly. But that's something I've been doing. That's a new effort. Uh, and then, of course, I continue to make pockets full of soup kind of irregularly. Mm. That's that's really a a when I when I can get it in thing right now. But it still comes up. It's been I think we've had two this month. So let me pop those up every now and then. 
and then uh, my creative work were kind of funny. I pop in on other people, pop in every now and then on an IGN podcast. I was over at the What's Good Games year anniversary stream last month. I'll be doing some stuff for E3 that I haven't announced yet. Things like that. Very cool. Very cool. Good to see you keeping busy, Jared. What has been the hardest part of getting to a point where people like What's Good Games and IGN and Kind of Funny, they do want you on their shows. They do want your voice to add to, I guess, the conversation. I think the hardest part for me has been, I'm not a person for whom, my positivity is, is not fake. It's not built just on the way I want things to be. But it is in constant tension with the fact that clinical depression and then since the accident, extraordinary anxiety are a very regular part of my life. I, I've been chronically clinically depressed pretty much as long as I can remember. And I probably will have to deal with that illness as long as I live. It's very likely that that's just going to be something I I am treated for until the day I die. Um, I spent some time uh, in a mental hospital at the end of last year, and that was really just another step in a long, long history of of dealing with this illness. That does make what I do for a living difficult because I do have a large public following and um, not nearly as large as some, but large enough that I feel a sense of responsibility about the things I say and do. And when anxiety is making me feel compulsive and frightened and angsty and angry and terrified and when depression is leading to feelings of worthlessness and bitterness and hate and exhaustion and I constantly have to think when I'm about to go on camera or make one of my jillions and jillions of tweets or things that are a part of what I do for a living and you, know, you have to be public if you're going to have a public show I constantly sit there going, how do how do I reflect a sincerity to my audience about the way I am right now to this community? How do I not prove disingenuous to them while still not lashing out at these very real pains I feel right now? That's hard. And I haven't always succeeded in it, frankly. There are, there are things that I wish I could take back uh, that I'll never be able to. But that's one of the hardest parts about what I do uh, for me personally because that's just part of who I am. And even with the doctors and the medication and the, the treatment, it's still going to be there to a degree. Uh, it's kind of like being kind of like having a, any other illness that doesn't have a complete cure. It's, you know, you're still going to feel some of the symptoms. Yeah, so how do you remain so positive when you're having those feelings and I guess wanting to be genuine but not wanting to just keep everything negative to yourself? Because I guess depression and positivity are at odds in many ways. can be, yeah. Um, I, I mean, yeah. positivity is ultimately not – or I, what I heard some wise person, what's called grounded positivity, uh, is not at odds with depression exactly, but it is, it, it's an inherent part of living with it. Um. You don't make up the positivity. You just try to accept the reality that most of the things that are making you depressed are, in fact, real, but 
are they one in that moment hurting you as much as they feel like they're hurting you in that moment or is you know yes this thing that happened to me was frightening this terrible event but is that actually going on right now or is that something that happened two months ago and you're still experiencing the same emotions for some reason uh, if the answer is B, then it may be helpful to access the emotions and go, perhaps the emotional intensity I'm feeling right now is inappropriate and I should reevaluate that. The ground of positivity also provides context. Yeah, life sucks, but it's also great. Terrible things happen and so do good things. And just adding that, it's kind of like somebody said, I don't know who, who I heard first say this, but they were talking about Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States. You ever read it, Jonah? I have not, no. So Zinn's work is controversial and was especially controversial when it was first released because people regarded it as historical revisionism. He wrote a history of the United States that focused mostly on the position of marginalized groups of Americans at periods of time that in many classical history texts were dominated by those in power. Uh, so you had history from the perspective of, it's like, yeah, life was, you know, life was great in the in the 19th century if you were a, a white landowning male, but what if you were a woman that couldn't vote? Or, uh, you know, if you were, and they went down, it would go down and just like, this is what it was like to live then for that. In this age of identity politics, scriping, yelling, what, I'm sorry, I'm not scoffing at identity politics at all, but I mean a time when, when any mention of of diversity is viewed as political as opposed necessarily to historic a view like zen's was easily dismissed or even worse became a flashpoint for uh for uh vitriol but one of the things Zinn pointed out was look i didn't write this to say that this is the only thing that happened I wrote this because it was an underrepresented part of the story and it's meant to be taken as a part of the whole. Hmm. It's like, you've already got plenty of history books about the other stuff. I'm just adding this to the whole canon of the thing and providing context, which I think is a tremendous point on this part. I think that it's like that for positivity with depression. You look, the fact is sometimes you're depressed because bad things happen. Because uh, bad things are real and awful. People die. People get sick. People get hurt. People do terrible things to us. And this good thing happened too. Accept both of those things as real. And deal with each of them, contextualize with the other. That's the best answer I know how to give you in short terms. Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> you could probably, I imagine, talk about that for a very, very, very long time. Oh, I can be trusted to talk about anything for a very long time. <laughs> Uh, which is, that's a good segue to the next question, which was one that you may have answered already, but do you have advice for people that want to be Jared Petty? Well, don't be Jared Petty. <laughs> uh, definitely. Be someone better, please. Okay. Uh, you know what I'm saying. But no, I mean, you talk about people who want to work in this field yeah, or, like, or people who want to minister or people- I mean, I, I suppose most people listening would probably look at the work you've done with IGN uh, and yeah. even what you're doing now as a creator- independent of any organization to think, man, how could I get to that point? So what's uh, the best advice for those people? Yeah, there's a lot I can give you. Obviously, John has covered a lot of it already with, um, you know, first off, understand you can do everything right and still fail. Um, You have to know that. You just must know that you, even if you're special, the world may not treat you as special as you are. Some of the most deserving people in the world of art and video games are an art 
will never achieve the success they deserve. And that could happen to you no matter how hard you work. Please understand that when you enter this field. That's a hard thing to say to somebody because how can you understand something and still go for mm. it? You know, I mean, there's another version of me someplace that is sitting there talking about moving to San Francisco, not making it, and about how nobody should ever work in the video game industry <laughs> because it's so, you know, that part, that, that version of me, that, that, that alternate string theory dimension version of me, by the way, is, is, is probably not, you know, wrong. Um, because I, I'd be like, I worked as hard as I could and I did a great job and I still didn't make it. Lot, there are lots of people that have that story in life and they didn't do anything wrong and they did a lot right, a lot of them. But if you want to do this anyway, and uh, I understand that mania, uh, it inhabits my heart, a lot of things you can do. Uh, first off, even though writing is less and less a public-facing skill in this industry, the ability to write will aid you in more ways than you can imagine. Every video you've ever watched that's worth watching and wasn't a live stream was scripted. I'm not saying live streams aren't worth watching, but I'm saying that anything that didn't fall in the live streams category was probably scripted. And somebody wrote that script. Writing a script is not easy. Hmm. And the fundamentals of journalistic writing will make you a better script writer because journalistic writing, even though I'm not a journalist, I understand a little about journalistic writing. And journalistic writing is concise at its best. It is uh, to the point, and so are the best scripts. So you'll be able to to learn to parse things down. There's a great scene in the movie A River Runs Through It where one character you know, is, is writing an essay he shows it to his father. He's homeschooled. And the father looks at it, glances, and says, cut it in half. <laughs> the kid goes back and rewrites it. The father looks at it, reads it again, goes, cut it in half. The kid goes back, writes the essay again. Now it's a quarter of the length it originally was. And the father reads it carefully, looks up at him, says, good. The guy grows up to be a newspaperman. And I think there's a lot of that. So write, practice, read other people's work, get better. Learn to write more in fewer words whenever possible. Uh, don't avoid big words. Big words are great. Just use few words in general. Use long words if you wish. I love long words, but use few. Uh, practice your diction. Practice, practice speaking. Record yourself and learn to spread your voice out so that it sounds good. I'm not good at this, but I do work on it. It's not natural for me. And while my voice is kind of lispy and irritating, I do the best that I can. As you're practicing that diction, use that opportunity to learn sound mixing. Learn how to normalize and compress and use audio equipment and use audio software. Uh, learn how stereo channels versus mono channels work and how a good mix works. Learn to edit video. Get your Photoshop skills up. Um, learn to cut together everything from silly memes to, uh, to short presentation-style videos. Learn to edit gameplay footage. Learn to capture gameplay footage and cut it together so that what's happening syncs with what you're saying. And then learn how sound libraries work and how to insert sound effects, how to do transitions, how to do musical scoring and tracks, how to put all this together, how to record on a mic and get good quality. Learn about equipment. Learn lighting. Learn to use a camera. Learn business skills, if at all possible. Learn about spreadsheets and organization and be able to provide examples of project management. Learn everything you can about helping things get done and showing that you know how to take something from the very first stages to the very last all on your own if you need to. 
read as many great writers in the field as you can watch as many great films documentaries and pieces of video game writing as you can and of course play games play lots of <laughs> games and don't just play what people are playing right now not to be an old fogey man but dig up something like the old the essentials list that one update all those years ago uh, the, the essential video games and play them all Go back and learn the history of the medium and discover how it became what it is now. Not necessarily because you need to know all of that to speak in an informed way about what you have now, although that certainly helps, but also because if you learn that skill once, you will continue to apply it to new games. And the games that you played 10 years ago to those, you'll have a whole new context to talk about them. It'll really help. Be nice to people. Don't be too pushy. Um, if somebody says no to you, accept that no at face value and if then look for another way to do something for them somebody's like no i don't need that right now just don't keep pushing heavens find another way to help you know or another place don't don't try to bulldoze them uh if you really really are looking for those open doors to writing uh to this day the way i came in is still one of the best and hardest uh, but most open, and that is uh, guide writing. There is always a need for guide writers. And when I say hard, it's, uh, guide writing is not hard. It just takes forever. Um, actually, it is hard. There's a skill to it. I mean, technical writing is the only kind of writing you don't want credit for most of the time. It's about, A good technical writer, nobody notices the language because your job is to help people find something or discover something, not to get noticed for your writing. And so, in a way, it's, a, it's like an understated mode of writing that... that it's humbling to do, but it's also great when you get good at it. And uh, you write guides for IGN and you keep pointing them out and you keep following their advice and you listen to the advice they give you and you keep sending those in. There is a very good chance they will hire you to write guides eventually. And if they hire you to write guides, they may eventually hire you for other projects. And that's how I got in. So uh, I realize that's only one door, but... You know, that's how that's how I got in. That's how Colin got in. That's how Marty got in. That's how Sam got mm -hmm. in. That's how Miranda got in. That's how, you know, it's it, there, a lot of us got our starts uh, writing guides. Uh, some folks still do it because it's not like it's, I don't want to give the impression that it's like, and that's how you gateway in and then you go on. And do, no, I and Miranda writes guides religiously. She writes some of the best guides I've ever seen. Uh, and she's a senior editor. So I wrote them the whole time I was there. Sure. That's uh a lot of things to do and yeah i'm sorry hopefully that's... people can find the time to do them all yeah i know well i mean that's it. it it is um i don't want to be discouraging but it is more than anyone should do uh it is a lot of work and getting into this field it is genuinely difficult to do much but work and i, I think people should know that i know yeah. people with the discipline to maintain what we call work-life balance in this industry, I don't know many of them. People love their jobs, then they wouldn't trade them for the world. And I'm not saying that that's some kind of abusive situation or like that at all. That's, I'm saying that the act of being a professional video game critic or writer or entertainer is almost by its nature in, in the way the industry works right now going to be time consuming. And... Uh, it's a lot to do. So if you want to break into it, get ready to not sleep a lot. That is the name of the show. It's putting in work and it's clear that you've done a lot of that, Jared. 
I, I've done some. I, I have learned <laughs> to sleep more and take better care of myself because you know one one thing about uh, one thing about um, uh, having a nervous breakdown is it kind of does remind you that there is you know more to more to life than than uh, than we allow ourselves to think some days. I mean the fact of the matter is that I uh, I certainly allowed myself to develop some dysfunctional habits. And uh, if you do not remember this, guys, people say it your whole life, but it's much better to believe it before the disaster than after. Because it will. nobody's special in this. Nobody's immune to it. If you don't take care of yourself, you will eventually fall apart. If you don't take care of yourself, you can't do good work. If you don't sleep, if you don't eat well, if you don't have a social life, if you don't have people around you you love you will eventually break and you won't be able to do what you love anymore. Uh, I, you know, I, I was thankful that I had doctors and helpful people all around me that were able to pick me up when I fell because if I hadn't, I might never have been able to, you know, do what I love again. I, I might, have completely melted down and who knows but instead because those people were around me i was able to be to continue doing what i enjoy and as a matter of fact i'm getting greater joy out of it than i have in a long time yeah it's awesome okay my favorite question to ask jared if you could do anything and know that you wouldn't fail what would you do oh wow um i mean i'm avaristic uh i like money Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the first place my mind went was uh, probably buy the Mega Millions lotto ticket. I've never bought a lottery <laughs> ticket. But if I knew I wasn't going to fail, that means I win, right? Is that how that works? Yeah, that's how it works. I mean, this is awfully tempting, Jono. Um, <laughs> I, it really is. But if we're not going to talk avaristically, then um, I think that... I think that I would create a video game. Um, I know I can succeed in making a video game. I don't know if I can succeed in selling one or financing one. And I, I know I can make a good game. I'm not worried about that. I know enough now to believe that I can create a good game were I to have the funds and the time to see it through. Um, I'm very confident in that. Isn't that how it works now, though? It, all you need yep. to do is make a good game and it will sell because that seems to be how indie games have become so big is that they haven't had huge marketing pushes, but they've been good and word spreads and the cream rises to the top. A lot of them have. I think there are some that get lost in the shuffle, definitely. There are great games that don't make their budgets back. I mean, think about iOS, where where games have effectively been almost entirely forced into a free-to-play model because they can't get enough money off their games, even if they're great. Uh, I mean, you ever been to the, the or you ever go to the Android Premium Store and you right. know you'll look at games that are truly great and they've sold five, ten thousand copies. And you're just sitting there like, okay, so this game costs five bucks, and Droid's taking 30%, and they probably had a small marketing budget, and then they had their overhead, and the person who made this game lost so much money making it. And so, yes, there is some truth that indie games rise to the top, but not nearly all of them, not nearly all that deserve to. And uh, the other part, of course, is what I'm saying here about, yeah, there's the question of hopefully the game will sell, but will it sell and you know how do i get the money to make the game so mm. i think my my dream answer to this is that 
What's the thing I want to try? I want to try to pull off the game and succeed, which means I have all the time and money I need to make the game happen, and then it sells well enough to cover the bills. Um, sure. Those two parts... It's that first part. is You think about the guys that make Cuphead mortgaging their homes? You know, I, I mean... They, by the time Cuphead was done, it spent far more money than they ever planned on it. And thank God they sold a million copies. Because if they hadn't, I can't imagine what would happen to them. Um, and the, so, yeah, it's, it's a hard industry for that. Uh, hmm. But, yeah, that's the dream. So I, I want to make a game, and I want cool. it to be good and people to play it. There's my, there's mine. Uh, although, if I had the Mega Millions, I could probably pull that off, too. So maybe I'll see yeah, it for the lottery. Yeah, true. <laughs> I think that you've got a lot of uh, Patreon fans that would would help with that or or be very vocal about helping you promote the game anyway i i said uh, a little over a year ago i was asked at ign what have you not done that you want to do in the next 10 years and i said i want to write a book and i want to make a game i'm writing the book right now nice and when that's done i'll make the game cool is the book uh books that's the whole under wraps at the moment oh yeah yeah it's it's not yeah. nearly ready to show oh lord no and there's no no publisher or anything like that uh just because i write it doesn't mean anybody's going to want to publish it but <laughs> but no it'll, it'll be but i do think i'll have it done by the end of the year very so. cool look forward to hearing more about that uh Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jared. This is the longest episode I've done by far. So thank you very well, much. I can <laughs> no always be trusted to talk too much. Yeah. Have you had a good time though? Oh, I had a ball. I thank you so much for having me. I was really, really, really excited that you reached out and wanted to make this happen. I'm sorry, but made you wait so long. Honestly, oh, that's all right. You've been busy. And, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm in good company. Andrea Renee was on last week or last week before this recorded, and uh, yeah. there's been a lot of your guests are people that I, I really have a lot of respect for and care about. So I, I'm glad to be in uh, in kind of your your hall of heroes here. Oh. I, I will. <laughs> I promise to sweep the floor around their feet. Um, oh, thank you. But yeah, John, you did good stuff here. Thank you for this. No I've, had a, I've had a ball. And hey, I, I can always be trusted to talk about myself for as long as possible. That's the thing. Everyone loves to talk about themselves. It's, it's easy. It's an easy sell. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Thank you for listening. And thanks to Audio Technica. That was Jared Petty, who you can find on Twitter at Petty, Jared. Go support his Patreon. Hop, lip, and jump. Check that out on YouTube as well. If you want to support this podcast, you can always leave an iTunes review or check out some of the sweet putting in work merchandise over at 8bit.net slash P-I-W, that's A-T-E-B-I-T. And while you're there, check out the rest of the awesome podcast content from the 8-Bit Collective. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Jono himself. And until next week, keep putting in work.